0: Well, it's uh, kind of with mixed emotions that we uh, come to this last message in this series. This is actually the 33rd message in the series through Hebrews, and we're just going to use this as kind of a uh, a review and to kind of go back and highlight some of the messages. And, boy, I sure appreciated the music. You know, I don't know if you uh, caught it. Did you say this, that many of those songs that Jeff chose today were ones that specifically related that he had chosen uh, throughout this series on Hebrews that really reinforce the themes uh, that the writer of Hebrews talks about throughout uh, the book. And uh, so I'm calling this Unshakable, and of course the series title was Unshakable Faith. And uh, I'm just going to kind of go through a review of of the key themes throughout uh, the book. But, you know, every time I begin to think that life is tough. You know what I'm talking about when you're just kind of facing a bit of a trial or a crisis or you're maybe in some of the quieter moments. Maybe you're driving in your car and you begin to feel the weight and the anxiety and your mind goes to all of the different stresses and struggles in life. Or maybe these days it's when you begin to think about all that's going on in the world and in our country, you know, as Ken was talking about. And uh, whenever I get that way, I've trained myself to begin to think about Job. Do you ever do that? Do the Lord put Job on your heart? He's a historical figure mentioned. (laughs) What's that? No? (laughs) Well, by comparison, it's a nice uh, comfort. Um, He's a historical figure mentioned in the Bible. And uh, I, I would venture to say there have been few people in history who have been tried to the breaking point like Job. Uh, The afflictions that he faced were enough for two people, three people, more. Um, And he endured one crisis after the other, and by the way, the majority of them all happened in one day, if you remember the story. So first, he endured the loss of all of his possessions. All of his oxen and donkeys and camels and sheep were either stolen or burned up. His livelihood was absolutely decimated. And then in a matter of minutes, he was left desolate and all of his workers, too, as one of them came to tell him, were also killed. So now not only is all of his livestock gone, but his servants, his workers, his helpers were gone. The same fire that had consumed the livestock consumed many of them then as if that weren't enough he faced the loss of his children that's where it really begins to affect us all of his children were in a house when a great wind came up and collapsed the house on them and killed them what a tragic loss i mean it's hard to imagine the shock and, and grief that he faced in that moment And then, to top it all off, he endured the loss of his own health. He was afflicted with a serious disease of boils all over his body. There was not an area of his body, the Bible tells us, that was not affected. Job was a man who was grieving. He was suffering. And now he's utterly in pain and afflicted. And yet, it's this same Job who makes the following statement. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. See, Job had an unshakable faith. That's why he comes to my mind when I have those pity parties. And I don't mean to marginalize by using the phrase pity party, because there's some pretty heavy stuff that we all face. Maybe you can relate to one or more of the things that Job faced. You know, a lot of people because of this tyrannical lockdown, lost their entire business. In some cases, the built businesses they built up for years, gone. Maybe you faced the loss of a child or a close relative. So, but when I face difficult times, my mind goes to Job, who said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job didn't understand everything God was doing, but he confessed yet will I trust him. He was hurting and suffering, but he declared, yet will I trust him. Job was unsure of what the future held for him, but he exclaimed, yet will I trust him. He was devastated physically, financially, and relationally, but he shouted, yet will I trust him. And if you know the story, his friends turned on him and even lied about him. But he cried, yet will I trust him. He had the kind of faith that the audience of the, the original recipients of this book of Hebrews that we've been studying needed. It was an unshakable faith. They needed to trust God and in trying times. You remember well, we've talked about it for a year now. Uh, We started this series, by the way, a year ago. And we talked about how these believers in the first century were being persecuted, (coughs) tormented. Uh, They were suffering under the reign of Nero, the tyrannical Roman leader. He was burning Christians at the stake. He was hauling off family members. He was destroying their homes. And so the writer comes along and encourages them to have an unshakable faith because due to the incredible persecution they were facing, many of these first century Jewish Christians were considering throwing in the towel, giving up, walking away from Christianity and the church, and instead kind of going back to the old system of Judaism, which at the time was still... Uh, basically bought and paid for by the Roman government. So, in this message this morning, I'm calling it Highlights from Hebrews. I mean, I'm going to blow through the main points from each message in the series. Now, that may sound ambitious. It probably is. But I'm going to talk faster than the winds that blow across eastern Colorado. I'm going to reach like 70 to 80 miles an hour <laughs> with gusts up to maybe 100. <laughs> so you're going to have to listen closely, but don't worry about taking notes. You won't be able to. Uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to review each main point from each message uh, if, in a manner that will allow you to take notes. But all of these are recorded. You can always go to our church website or the Not by Works website and uh, go back and watch them uh, more slowly. Uh, I just want you to kind of let the message of Hebrews. It was really fascinating for me to kind of go back and uh, review this because it, you know, when you do it once a week over a period of a year with some breaks in between, we took a break for a Christmas series, we've had a break for some different special events. It, it's hard to really appreciate the continuity of the book, but when you do it all at once, it, you can really see the author making the case, and it's just, I, I know that one or more of these messages these main principles from the different sections of hebrews will resonate with you and it'll probably be in a different way than someone else Uh, so let's just kind of dive in the first we started a year ago with a look from the first chapter of hebrews at who is jesus the writer begins the letter by reminding his readers right out of the chute that jesus is far better than anything and everything judaism has to offer he's the central uh, purpose of christianity he's the The supreme expression, the superior example, the sufficient executor of God's grace. Remember, he starts out right at the beginning. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, the church age, spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, as we were singing these songs, I couldn't help but think what it must have been like for those first century Jews uh, when Christ came on the scene and, and, and for centuries before that to, to bear the weight of their sins. Um, we know that the sacrificial system that they used was just a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice. In fact, we're going to talk about that. We talked about it in one of the messages. We know that, but still, in their system, it was the means in which they unloaded the burden. And can you imagine having to walk around bearing the burden of your sins until the next time you could see the priest or go through one of the sacrificial you know, system? Uh, and yet today, we don't have that. And that's one of the things that the writer's going to come back to again and again is that Christ is our high priest forever. And he wanted them to, to get a good picture of who... Uh, Christ is. And he essentially says, stick with Jesus. That's the, the main point of chapter one. Stick with Jesus. Don't abandon him. And then we moved on to chapter two, and we came to the first of four, five warning passages in Hebrews. And the first one was the danger of neglect. And the writer talks about how if you neglect the responsibilities that come with the Christian life, the pro- responsibilities that come with your salvation, you will be susceptible to To weakness and to being caught off guard when trials come your way. You need to stay in the word. You need to do the things that help you mature as a believer. Remember, he said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It is a great salvation that we have in Christ. Don't neglect it. He says, take your your faith seriously. And then in in the next part of chapter 2, we talked about a very relevant passage that really is the The key to understanding the argument for the rest of the book. And and a lot of people skip over this verse in verse 5. They miss the significance of it. But the, the writer basically sets forth the reason for our hope a reason to hang on to our faith, a reason to stick with Jesus. Because he talks about a new world to come that will make this present world, with all of its suffering and trials and difficulty, pale in comparison. Notice what he said. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Now, in the context there, he's talking about how Jesus is superior to the angels and so forth. But notice he says he has not put the world to come of which we speak. What he's talking about is looking beyond their difficult circumstances to the future kingdom. And we talked about how he in this passage talks about a new world horizon. It's always out there giving us hope as we march towards it. A new world leader, ultimately Jesus Christ. And then the new world order, a time of peace and righteousness and justice. The new world is on the horizon. It's coming. So don't be discouraged. A better day is coming. He he can't really just say grin and bear it. You know, hey, I know life's tough. Get over it. Our hope has to have a tangible reality. And that tangible reality is the time The coming kingdom where we will be with Christ, walking and talking with him, and we'll be rewarded for our faithfulness. Then we finished up chapter 2 with a, a message I called Everyone Needs a Hero. And I talked about five characteristics of true heroes because Jesus, the writer says, is the captain of our salvation. He's our leader, right? He's our hero. And We talked about how heroes rally and relate and risk and rescue and respond, a true hero. We contrasted that with the world's heroes, but the key verse was it was fitting for him, Christ, for whom all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus can relate. He, he's, he can relate. So let Jesus be your hero, we said. Then we got to chapter 3, and we, we talked about faithfulness. Be faithful. Be faithful as Christ is faithful. faithful. Don't give up. Don't stop. Keep going. Persevere. And to motivate his readers, the writer in this section appealed to a couple of well-known examples of people who modeled faithfulness. Jesus, who he's been talking about, and then Moses, who his readers would have been very uh, familiar with. Notice he says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful. Consider him. And then he compares that to, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. But, of course, Jesus in even higher and better ways. So the main principle was be faithful because he is faithful. Then the rest of chapter 3 was taken up by the second of the five warning passages, and this one was the danger of doubt. We talked about the danger of neglect. Don't neglect the responsibilities of our great salvation, but also stop doubting. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's what they were considering doing. They had reached their tipping point. They had had enough. They were shaking their fists toward God and saying, Enough! I can't take it anymore. I'm done. And sadly, throughout church history, many believers have made the same poor, unwise choice. And to do so brings serious consequences. It brings loss of blessing, loss of reward bad example to others. uh, All kinds of negative consequences of making that kind of decision. And the writer warns against that. Notice he says, an evil heart of unbelief. You realize unbelief, doubt, is a sin. It's a sin. Whatever's not of faith is sin, the Bible says. It's not healthy to doubt. We do it, and when we get into our series on the book of Psalms, starting next week, we're going to see a lot of examples where the psalmist, particularly David, had very real moments with God, but they always resolve themselves in a steadfast confidence and resolution of faith. It's one thing to doubt the Lord. It's another thing to camp out there and make life-altering decisions based on that faith, and we don't ever want to do that. So he said, stop doubting because God can be trusted. And and then we got to chapter 4, which is the great rest chapter. And uh, I've always liked Hebrews chapter 4, talking about our rest and And we ask the question, do you need rest? Do you need a break? Maybe you feel overwhelmed. That's how the Hebrew Christians felt in the first century. Uh, and, And they needed to be reminded that there still remains a rest for them. And we can experience that rest even right now in the midst of the storm. He said, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Sometimes the very thing we need the most is the very thing that we skip over or run from. And uh, so we, we closed out that message by looking at the famous words of David in Psalm 37. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. And then a very well-known section of uh, chapter 4 was our next focus. And I called it, Have You Seen Your Priest Lately? Um, And in Hebrews 4, the writer reminds us there's an open door for us in heaven. And he's using an analogy here that his readers would have been very familiar with because they understood the earthly priesthood. But he's saying, Hey, that system's old and obsolete. You've still got a priest, though. And he's in heaven. There's an open door there awaiting for you. The key verse was, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's this open door, and instead of, you know, worrying about what may be coming down the pike or fixating on all of the difficulties and trials around us, instead of all of the unknowns, you know, that's what ultimately fear comes down to is fear of the unknown. I mean, if if you knew uh, there were, there with absolute certainty there was no boogeyman in the closet, you wouldn't be afraid of it, right? Uh, but it's because we don't know that we end up fearing. And Jesus says, you do know. I'm here. The door is open. Come see me. I'm your advocate. And so we ask that question, have you seen your priest lately? And then we got to chapter 5. I called this one good in good hands. They needed to hear and we need to hear that, God was with them, that this Jesus he was appealing to that had saved them from the penalty of sin when they placed their faith in him uh, was equal to the task, right? And so he said, every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weaknesses, we talked about how the, the, when we are trusting in God, we're trusting in someone who's been there. And he, we're in good hands. And then we closed out by looking at Jesus' own words in John 10 when he said, I give them eternal life, they shall never perish. And notice he said, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And as if that weren't enough, he went on to say, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And it's comforting to know we're in good hands. And then uh, we had some fun with, with this one, Do You Know Your ABCs? And you may remember I introduced this message by showing a video of the marshmallow test. Anybody remember that? With the kids that were given, put in a room and, uh, and secretly videotaped. They were given a marshmallow, and they were told they could, they could either eat that marshmallow right then, or if they waited and were patient, they could get two marshmallows. And it was hilarious to watch. And we, we talked about the, the whole point was you know, that delayed gratification, making wise choices, choosing between the better of two options, and the original recipients of this letter needed the wisdom that comes with maturity. You know, as adults, obviously the marshmallow test, I hope, would be a pretty easy one to pass. Uh, Kids, though, as more immature, it was more difficult. So we talked about where the writer said, by this time you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the Oracles of God. First principles there meaning the ABCs, the basics. These were believers. Many of them had gotten saved right after the resurrection of Christ in the early days of the church. Some of them had gotten saved right there at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So they'd been saved for 30 years, and yet when a rough stint came their way, they were throwing in the towel. And so we talked about five marks of spiritual maturity. Uh, If you want to know if you're spiritually immature, uh, check your temperature here. Lack of interest in doctrinal matters. Inability to learn the scriptures on your own. Regression in biblical knowledge. Unrighteous behavior or little or no spiritual discernment. So we left that message by asking you to do some introspection here. Am I progressing in my knowledge of God? Do I know more about Him today than I did yesterday? Am I putting into practice what I learn, more importantly? And then in chapter 6, we came to the third warning passage, and one of the most famous of the five warning passages is along with chapter 10, the danger of apostasy. And... We talked about what that means. It was exactly what these readers were thinking about doing, turning their back on God. And he he says, y- you can do that, but there's going to be a serious consequence. Now, a lot of people, as we talked about back then, uh, when we went over this passage, mistakenly think that you can lose your salvation, that when Jesus said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, he didn't really mean it. He was just kidding. What he meant was, if you keep being good and doing well and following me and you don't make any mistakes, then you'll go to heaven, which, of course, obliterates grace and means Jesus didn't really have to die on the cross if my eternal destiny is based upon my behavior anyway. But, no, he meant it. He meant it, and this is, this is not about eternal uh, destiny or not our eternal salvation is secure. But nevertheless, there are some serious consequences uh, that come with it. And so, he, first of all, he describes them unquestionably. We went through this in detail. Unquestionably, believers here enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift they've, gift. they've become partakers of the Holy Spirit, something that only believers can say. And they've tasted the good word of God. But yet, if they fall away, he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. In other words, there's a point past which you're not going to be able to logically and in a compelling way argues someone back into the fold. Notice he says it's impossible to renew them again. It doesn't say it's impossible for them to be renewed. It's just impossible for you to bring them back. Only God can do it. In fact, in the text he says if God is willing, they will be brought back. But it's a, der- a terrible place to be. And what we concluded was that biblical ignorance leads ultimately to apostasy. If you don't know the Bible... And you don't know your Lord, which the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. It tells us everything we need about himself in here. The more we know the word, the more we know the Lord. And the more we know the Lord, the less likely we are to turn our back on him. And then we went on in chapter 6 to talk, in fact, we spent a couple of messages from this section on uh, standing on the promises. And uh, we talked about how God's word has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, as Peter tells us And you know, we said, what promises are you holding on to? And so he uses Abraham as an example. And he says, and so he, after he had patiently endured talking about Abraham, obtained the promise. Well, Abraham's a guy that his readers could certainly under, could relate to, and we can too. And he was a great uh, man who was given a promise. He wavered. He took matters into his own hands, if you recall. But eventually God provided a son, the son of promise, and uh, even to show Abraham's unwavering, unshakable faith, even when God said, sacrifice your son. Abraham said, okay, I trust you enough. I don't know what you're doing here, but I'm going to do what you tell me, and I'm still going to believe your promises. And so we said, hang on and hold firm. You can count on God's promises. But then we went back, and as I was kind of going through this, I decided to go back and zero in on two verses at the end of that section, even though we kind of already covered them. Uh, so we had looked at chapter 6 the previous week, where the writer, you know, talked about the Abrahamic covenant and how we can count on God's unconditional promises. But then he reminds us in in this uh, section that our hope is anchored uh, to the Lord. He says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, soul there meaning life, not our eternal soul, but our life, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. And Uh, And so we talked about how we need to anchor our hope to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we got to chapter 7, where he's going to talk once again about the high priest. We had talked about that back in chapter 4. Have you seen your priest lately? But chapter 7 is really chock full of information about Jesus Christ, our ultimate high priest. I called this heaven on earth. We said in verse 26 was the key verse for such a high priest, that's Jesus, was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And I spent a great deal of time talking about how critical that phrase is. It's a point, uh, a principle that many believers uh, you know, overlook the significance of it. It comes up again and again throughout the New Testament, and that is that Jesus Christ, in His current position at the right hand of the throne of God, has dominion over Satan and all of his minions. So... We know from reading the New Testament account that during his earthly ministry, the demons were subject to him, and he could rebuke this and calm the storms and all that, but somehow we forget that he can still do that now. In fact, it's just the opposite. We tend to think, because he's not here, and I can't see him and feel him and touch him, that somehow he's not as powerful. But no, the writer reminds us that you know he is powerful, and uh, and we need to go to him and and seek the the strength that he can give us uh, through his high priestly uh, ministry that is eternal by the way not something that had to be done again and again which is the point that he makes in that chapter so we kind of concluded by asking you this question are you availing yourself of your heavenly resources in Christ and then what the Lord put on my heart as a way to kind of describe that is to say look don't wait until you die to go to heaven (laughs) go to heaven now every day set your mind on things above right and so, and then uh, we got to chapter eight, and kind of continuing on that same theme of drawing our attention heavenward, uh, he reminded us that we need to not be distracted by our earthly troubles, but uh, to remember where we actually, you know, reside, if you will. And we talked about a, a, I used an illustration, a true story about a, a shipwreck survivor, Stephen Callahan, from 1982, who was adrift in the sea for, I think it was nine days or something, and. And he he, he, he he had this mental toughness and mental resolve, and he and he created in his mind, if you remember the story, two people like he would talk to himself, right, and and one of them was the guy that wanted to give up, and the other was the guy that was going to keep on keeping on, and he was able to to win out in that battle by having this focus of, of faith and trust, and so. Verse 1 says, this is the main point of the things we are saying in this context of talking to Christ in the heavens and all that. We we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And we need to adore our superior priest. We need to access that superior place. We need to appreciate this program in this present age where we have unmitigated access because the veil has been rented into, and we can approach the Holy of Holies. And then we need to anticipate the superior promise. And then in chapter nine, we talked about, and the writer really begins to drive the point home, that this old system that you're thinking about going back to was really just a shadow, and now you've experienced the reality. So why would you want to go back to the shadow? And I used uh, Plato's allegory of the cave as an illustration it was presented in his work, Republic, and he has Socrates describe a group of people who lived chained to a wall in a cave all their lives, facing a blank wall. And they watched shadows that were projected on the wall from objects passing in front of a fire between them or behind them, and, and they began to give names to the shadows. And their reality, the shadows were the reality. The shadows were the real deal. But the writer of Hebrews says, what you saw before, what you experienced in the Judaistic system, was a shadow. It was a a copy. It was symbolic. He uses these words. He uses the word shadow in chapter 8, verse 5. He uses uh, it also in chapter 9 where they're called copies and symbolic. And he, and he says, but Christ. That's the key. Christ is the reality. These other things were the shadows. Why would you want to go back to the shadows? So he challenged Uh, At the end to say, in Christ we've been set free, so it's time to walk out of the cave and and see the real world and live in in real life with Christ our Savior. Then we focused on the blood of Christ, the beautiful passage at the end of chapter 9. I think this was the message where uh, the heirs family, if I recall, brought a lamb from the farm, a newborn baby lamb. Do they call them babies? You call them kids, don't you? Lambs. lambs, Lambs. Goat kids. A goat is a kid. Oh, we don't want to confuse the sheeps and the goats, no, no, that's for know. sure. That is not good. Uh, so, yeah, this little baby lamb, and, uh, and it was just, and you, you had some great comments, I think, about how, you know, the, you know this shedding of the blood of the lamb would have been significant. This was not, I mean, it, it showed just the power of sin and the need for redemption. And so we talked about how the writer says, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And uh, we gave a, a clear presentation of the gospel and said, are you washed in the blood? Have you received Christ's payment on your behalf when He shed His blood once for all for the sins of mankind? And that's the only way to find forgiveness. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. You've got to get it by faith, trusting in the one who paid the penalty on your behalf. And we spent two weeks in chapter 10 on boldness. Um, I came up with the very creative titles of Boldness Part 1 and Boldness Part 2. Uh, but uh, we talked about how the writer says, therefore, in light of these things I've been talking about, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Uh, and then we define boldness this way, boldness is being the only one who knows you're afraid and standing firm anyway. That's boldness. That's what these writers needed to, be, uh, to, to hear. They needed to be emboldened. Uh, then we came to the fourth warning passage, another very famous one in Hebrews chapter 10, which I called believers in the hands of an angry God, the Writer says very bluntly, "It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God." These warnings uh, throughout the letter get—they increase in intensity and get more serious and more blunt, and more uh, just. There seems to be more passion uh, behind them. You know, starts out with "Don't neglect your great salvation." Don't you know? Keep keep feeding the faith, so to speak. Uh, Don't doubt the Lord, right? But he gets gets to here, and he's basically saying, "Look." If you, just, if you do what you're contemplating doing and what some had already done, some of their friends and family, then uh, you're going to f- face some serious consequences. So he cautions them, don't deliberately abandon the Lord. Why? Because you'll face serious discipline. And then we talked uh, for two weeks about chapter 11, the famous Hall of Faith chapter. We called this Unwavering Faith, and we asked the question, how strong is your faith? After laying out the case for ten chapters, the writer then uses a just an onslaught of one example after the other of men and women of God who had incredible faith in, this, in the face of dire uh, circumstances. And that's really the question that was before his readers and that's the question that's before us. I have no doubt as I survey the landscape and, and go down this rabbit hole of all that's going on in the world from Satan's perspective and how he's coming against everything that this country stands for and, and the Bible stands for, that there are going to be many Christians who abandon the faith. We know that from history for 2,000 years, the, the highways of Christianity are littered with shipwrecked faith of believers. doesn't mean they're in hell. It just means they gave up. And I'm quite confident with what I see coming that that's going to be the case uh, again. And we need each other. We need to encourage each other to hang on to the faith. Uh, we need to, to stand firm. And, uh, and so we need to have this unwavering faith. He defines faith at the first verse here. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so we asked, how strong is your faith? And one of the two messages there, I talked about a description of faith, which is it believes in God's promises about the future. It be- beholds the invisible spiritual realities of life. That's a lot of what the writer had been saying earlier in the, in the letter. Is about setting our focus on heaven. It brings forth a good testimony. Nothing more beautiful than a person with an unwavering faith. You, just, you, you come across them and they're inspiring. Uh, it bears in mind God's promises and it behaves in a way that pleases God. Then we got to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, which at the time I commented that just about every message up to that point, I had made at least a passing reference to these two verses. Uh, uh, arguably two of the most well-known verses, not only in Hebrews, but in all of the Bible. I called this the race is on. The passage reads like this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that he had just described in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, like we sung about this morning, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we talked about how that word race is the word agon in, in, in Greek from which we get the English word agony. And he's not talking here about a casual jog through the park. That this the, life, the race of life is tough. And uh, we said don't quit till you're through. Learn from the saints, the ones he talked about in chapter 1. Lay aside the sins. Lean into the suffering. We talked a lot about that. That was heavy. Uh, for me anyway. I mean, what, what you need to understand, and I'm sure you do, is that as I'm preparing these messages, I'm, I'm basically studying the Word and, and doing my best to apply it to my life. And some of these messages actually impact me more than it probably does anybody else. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I really am, I know you hear this all the time, people say, you know, I really am preaching to myself, right? You know, there was a cartoon I saw one time of a preacher standing at a pulpit, and his head is down, and he's sleeping, and it has Zs over it, and the caption said, his mistake was when he said, everything I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. So, you know, (laughs) I hope I I don't put myself to sleep, Uh, but seriously, this message really, especially the part about leaning into the suffering, really spoke to me and, and, and encouraged me. And then we spent uh, two weeks on tests and trials. And this was really uh, educational, I think, really informative to understand the, the way God uses trials. And we, we talked about how the writer quotes the Old Testament here. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves He chastens, and then I gave you a couple of uh, handouts. I don't often do a lot of handouts. I'm not a big paper guy. I'm a digital guy, but sometimes paper can be nice, and we gave you a a couple of charts, one of which was the connection in Scripture between passive discipline and active discipline, and we talked about how passive discipline is just because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and it teaches us to trust God like Job, right? Uh, But it leads to spiritual maturity. But another way God brings us to spiritual maturity is when he disciplines us actively because of our direct disobedience. And uh, when we live according to the flesh and not after the spirit, when we walk our own way, God's going to discipline us. And it flows not from his judgment, but from his unconditional love for us. And it teaches us to obey him the way a father loves his children. So we spent two weeks on that. And then we got to the city of God. We sang about that again uh, this morning, Hebrews 12, the last part of it. Uh, he said, you have not come to the mountain that may, t- may be touched. He contrasts that with the Mount of Zion. So these two cities, which one are you wanting to go to? And he reminded them of something they forgot. You know, sometimes, you know, through nostalgia, we tend to think things were better than they were. And when we really stop and think about it and someone uh, points out, you know, that maybe we're seeing through rose-colored glasses, we think, we remember, you know, it wasn't all that great after all. So he reminds them that that Judaistic system you're going to, that's a distant God. That's a God that you were afraid to even go near. Do you really want to go back to that? Right now you can march right into his throne room in heaven, boldly, and lay your requests down. And uh, we talked about walking by faith and not by sight. And then we got to the final a warning passage, the danger of indifference. Um, Uh, And it's the most serious of all. It addressed those believers who, in spite of knowing all the truths that the writer had been presenting in this letter so far, in spite of all the other warnings, still cocks his or her head and says, Who cares? I'm going to abandon the faith anyway. And we talked about how the first century Jewish Christians knew the seriousness of apostasy. They knew how terrible it would be to abandon their brothers and sisters and their church. They knew that departing from the Lord, the same Lord that saved them, would bring negative consequences. And yet, they were considering doing it anyway. And he says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Puts it bluntly. Fear God. Fear God. Then uh, more recently, we talked about faith on display. And uh, just for the sake of time, we'll uh, skip through the verses here. But... Uh, we talked about how our faith, when we have it, he gives some practical examples at the end of the book, at the end of the letter here, what it looks like. It's going to come across as charity and hospitality, helping others. Remember, uh, he talks about, you know, entertaining strangers because they might even be an angel and you didn't know it. Empathy and dependency and purity and security. And then we talked about the value of the local church. This was another one that was, uh, you know, pretty uh, meaningful, is the church. Uh, just a tradition, or is it a ritual? Uh, Is it it something that actually has meaning? Is it a real body where you can uh, enjoy walking through whatever times together with a family? And uh, we, we, we talked about how we need to recognize and appreciate the value of the local church. Then we saw how the writer prayed for his readers in verses 18 and 19 of the last chapter, and we went to the sample prayer that the Lord gave, and Gave some elements of effective prayer, and uh, and it was it was interesting how uh, the writer didn't just give all this exhortation and advice and encouragement, but he actually took the time to pray uh, for his readers, and that was encouraging. And then one of the ones that probably had the, the greatest impact on me personally, as I studied it, I never would have picked that if you'd have told me in advance which passage you think is really going to resonate with you. I wouldn't have picked verses you know 20 and 21. But we talked about how the writer closes out with this interesting uh, statement now may the God of peace be with you. It's his benediction, which was just a couple of weeks ago, I think. And, and, it, it, and I call this the power of his presence because you would think, given all they were going through, he would reference the God of power, the God of authority, the God who can throw off the enemy, but he's the God of peace. Because what they needed, more than anything else, really at its core was peace and that's what we need right now with what we're facing in in this world and so uh, i just challenged us all to embrace his presence and let god be god then of course last week we uh, looked at the last uh, four verses of this letter and we called it uh, a crisis survival kit and where the writer closes out by making at least a passing reference to several key things that he had touched on throughout the the letter um, remember we talked about how the letter was really relatively short it seems long in our Bible because it's got 13 chapters but you can read the whole book of Hebrews in about 17 to 20 minutes so it's not that, it was not that long of a letter but anyway in that closing uh, part he talks about how we have hope, we have joy, we have each other, we have the clear teaching of scripture which provides a, a warning to, to let us know how we should respond but above all we have grace. And the, the letter ends with these words, grace be with you all. Amen. So it starts with grace. Jesus, the superior example and uh, so forth of grace. And it comes full circle with grace. So with that we'll we'll kind of put a period on the end of our Hebrews study uh, and we will leave you with the, the title of the series which was Trust God in Trying Times. And hopefully somewhere along this rich letter that we you know done a deep dive in the last year you picked up on some principles that really resonated with you but when it's all said and done that's what we're talking about trusting god trusting god walking by faith and not by sight let's pray father thank you for just uh laying it on my heart to to start with hebrews here as we uh as we went through this series over the last year and uh, thank you for just the power. You're, all of Scripture is profitable. We know that. But Lord, it just seems like each passage in this letter jumps off the page and reminds us of what a good God we serve. And uh, we do pray for that you would strengthen our faith, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And we thank you for your Son and our Savior who died in our place on the cross and is the author and finisher of our faith. And uh, Lord, we pray if there's anyone listening to this Uh, message or in the auditorium today that doesn't know you that in simple childlike faith they would place their trust in Jesus your son who died and rose again for their sins and by trusting in him receive the free gift of eternal life and it's in his precious name that we pray Amen